Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the novel Missionaries, our crack producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara of Racket Media, and our guest today... My boss, the one and only mighty Alana Newhouse, founder and editor of Tablet Magazine. And of course, I, the slumming angel and knocker off of tall hats, am Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Alana, it's a pleasure to have you here. It is a pleasure to be here. So you wrote... um, a piece that's going to be, I think the centerpiece manifesto that we discussed, the title of it was everything is broken, a title that speaks for itself. And it got a tremendous response, um, clearly struck a nerve and was, I think the, the closest thing to a manifesto we've had in quite a while. I mean, it really is a manifesto. And then for your art, Alana, you selected an Ani DeFranco live record, which was unexpected, but delightful in the end. And um, so before, before we really get going with Everything is Broken, um, why don't you tell us why you selected the Ani DeFranco record to go along with it without getting into too much about the record itself, but just what inspired the pairing? Uh, the truth is, is that I, um, I've been listening to that. It's actually a two disc album that I made you guys listen to, to be clear. Um, and, uh, I know. Right. Um, and the short answer is that it's what I've been listening to a lot, uh, this past year as, I've been looking out onto the world and a lot of the ideas that I came to express in that piece um, got written during moments where I had resurfaced that album, which was from my own past. Um, And so I guess we could talk a little bit later about what I came to understand the connections were between the two. But um, at first it was really just because that's kind of been the soundtrack for me of this piece. That's interesting. That is not, at all what I expected you to say. Um, so, okay. I look forward to hearing what you see the connections as I have some thoughts of my own. Um, but everything is broken is really what we're here to talk about. Everything, Alana, everything is broken. What do you mean? It can't all be broken. What do you mean by that? Broken Um, I mean, an astonishing amount of the landscape around us doesn't work. Um, And so it's possible, I think, and it is in fact reality for many people, um, that it can feel like in any given day that every system, institution, person that they come in contact with 
can't give them what they need, either to get basic services or to get any meaning, pleasure, uh, joy, uh, gravity out of life. And so is every single thing broken? I don't know. I guess it depends on who you are. I know that there are some people for whom it absolutely feels that way. Um, and who it feels for whom it feels like, um, the idea that they were raised with was that a certain amount of the world around them would simply work. And it just absolutely doesn't. So. So these people with the assumption that the world around them with work, these are, uh, particular sort of people, right? They're Americans, first of all. Well, it's um, interesting. I mean, I don't know. I, 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 a lot of the response to the piece, there's a lot of global response to the piece too, particularly in Western Europe, um, which probably is not an accident. But from the piece that was written for me as an American and expressing thoughts that I had reporting and speaking to other Americans. Yeah, so you start with a story about um, giving birth in 2014 and seeing something and having a sense that your, uh, I, I talk about this as my own children uh, bust into the room <laughs> despite being supposed to be asleep, um, <clears throat> and having a sense that he's in pain, right? Um, and you write, our son was hurt and it will take him years to heal longer than it should have. And that is on top of the injustice of the original wound. Though I thank God every day that we figured it out. And what is sort of noticeable, uh, sort of what you note is that, you know, you guys are, um, you and your husband are children of doctors. Uh, you have uh, sort of deep um, history in terms of reporting and researching backgrounds. You have health insurance. You, you have a lot of sort of the skills and connections uh, to work things out. And yet you sort of figured out what was wrong only by accident. And so you're asking, you're speaking to uh, a doctor that, you know, asking him like, why was this the case? Why did, even though we noticed something wrong at birth, why did the medical system fail to figure out what was the problem? And your friend basically goes through like the American medical system is broken. It's not, it's, you know, it's not designed around figuring out complexity and making people better, better, um, and, and then before he can sort of, before you can even get into that conversation, he turns to you and he says, now, can I ask you two something? How come so much of the journalism I read seems like garbage? Um, and that is the, the sort of jumping off point for you thinking, well, <laughs> how many institutions are broken? Um, and you decide ultimately everything, right? I and mean, to, yeah, sorry, I guess yeah. what I would say is, is, you know, I guess it's possible as somebody who wrote me an email said that I can fly to Australia so much easier now than anyone ever could 20 years ago. I suppose there are things that are not broken for some people. Um, yeah. What I think I was trying to say is that there's just an awful lot of um, broken, brokenness in the very, very big systems of our life 
and in some senses, what I would consider the very basic systems, healthcare, education, housing, um, jobs, uh, religion, the shape of our cities. Um, so maybe, maybe you can get on a plane to Australia and that's great. And I guess I'm happy for you and all the people in Australia who get to see you, but for everybody else, it's, it's quite obvious that the world is just simply more broken than it was. See, I think that's actually, that's a very useful example uh, to form a contrast, the flight to Australia, right? Because the flight to Australia is uh, a perfect symbol, not only of a technologically advanced kind of uh, what once would have been a, a luxury consumer good that's now much more broadly accessible, right? Like in an average person on a uh, what remains of a middle class salary in America could presumably save up the money to fly to Australia once a year, and they'd get there in less than a day. It's you know it's an incredible marvel of technology, but if you think about what the flight to Australia represents it represents speed velocity instant accessibility right and a kind of uh a kind of immediately gratified or immediately gratifiable instant accessibility to something that you don't necessarily need in an intimate sense and the contrast is with the the kind of institutions that govern your day-to-day life. So you can fly to, to Australia, but are you happy with the schools your children attend? Do those schools provide them with a meaningful education? Are you happy with the healthcare you have access to? You know, one of the things that Norman Doidge, the doctor Alana is talking about, who also is a, a writer for Tablet, one of the points that Deutsch makes is it's not just a failure of diagnosis or a, a lack of appreciation for complexity. No, actually, the problem with the American medical system is far more dire and more lethal. As he mm-hmm. points out, medical error is now the third leading cause of death in the United States. So this, this failure of the institutions isn't just a, a, a matter of inconvenience or uh, a matter of a, you know, kind of minor depreciation in quality. It's a matter of life and death. And it's maybe not a coincidence. It's maybe not unrelated that as a certain kind of high tech good has become more accessible, namely, you know, the boundaryless uh, speed uh, of a flight to Australia, the breaking down of borders, the collapsing of distance, that as that's become more accessible, and here I'm, I'm kind of bringing up a point that Alana makes in the piece and a contrast she can elaborate on, but that as that becomes more accessible, the basic institutions of day-to-day life, family, education, healthcare, religion, appear to be in states of free fall and collapse. Yeah. I mean, I think that you, it's, if you, if you need to build a a convenient road 
and a smooth road, you are likely going to be paving over a lot of what existed before. Um, and then creating a bunch of, you're going to create a big mess. Um, and it's, it, it absolutely is. It, the two are absolutely related in order to create a world of um, almost obsessive efficiency. We had to steamroll over a ton of the um, the, the nooks and crannies where actually humans lived and where we could hear from them and we could see them. And it, we created a smooth surface that looks really sleek, but it's suffocating and it's not a way to live, I don't think. So I think that, um, you know, if we're, if, we're, if we're talking about sort of everything is broken, this sort of um, discussion of general uh, decline. I mean, in, in some ways you set yourself up in a trap because of course certain things that are not in, inconsequential, right. Are going to spring to mind. Um, I think of sort of changes in American policing, right. Would be mm-hmm, a significant mm-hmm, one. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of, um, you know, in sort of progress on, uh, certain types of racial issues, um, uh, and a sort of enhanced awareness, uh, um, of certain facets of U.S. history, things that, I, you know, I, I don't think, um, that, that I think are extremely important to people's lives, right, and to their participation in democracy. But what, you, what you're what you talking about in, in, in response to this t- discussion of sort of speed and boundarylessness is institutional collapse, right? And you write, for seven decades, the country's intellectual and cultural life was produced and protected by a set of institutions, universities, newspapers, magazines, record companies, professional associations, cultural venues, publishing houses, Hollywood studios, think tanks, etc. cetera. Um, collectively, these in, uh, institutions respect a diversity of experiences and then stamp them all as American, right? Uh, and then that beginning in the 1970s, the economic ground beneath this, uh, underneath this landscape began to come apart. We substituted tech for labor. We began offshoring labor, smashing unions, and then you had the tech revolution, right? Um, which brings in, we describe as a very specific set of values, boundarylessness, speed, universal accessibility, and allergy to hierarchy. So much so that the weighting or preferring of some voices or products over others is seen as illegitimate Seeing one's own words and face reflected back as part of a larger current, a commitment to gratification at the push of a button, a quality of access commodified ex- to commodified experiences as the right of every human being on earth, the idea that all choices can and should be made instantaneously, and that the choices made by the majority in a given moment on a given platform represent a larger democratic choice, which is therefore both true and good until the next moment on the next platform. And that notion of, you call it flatness, right? Um, seems to me to be very true or getting at something that is obviously, obviously happened and that obviously sort of would degrade the kind of institutions which are supposed to shape the sort of individual character uh, of people within America and the sort of um, diversity of American experience as a whole. Yeah. I mean, I think that, what I guess I want to 
what I guess I would say is, is um, what I hoped for America was that, and I still hope for America, is that it's, it could be a country of expanding freedoms, which is to say we can't deny the parts of our past that are marked by extreme injustice and by the um, oppression of certain people, by the uh, pain that we put uh, communities and individuals through, um, by the lack of opportunity that we presented people with. But the notion that in every, that successive generations would at least see it as their mandate to expand freedom, not replace one person's freedom for someone else's, that feels not like progress to me. So whereas I absolutely welcome, embrace, and celebrate the parts of the technological revolution that have made our lives better. I want to, and I, I try my best to express this at the end of the piece, that I'm not looking for um, a return to a time before we had email um, and cell phones. What I'm actually saying is I'd like for us to be a little bit more rigorous about how we assess what that massive economic and communications revolution did to our lives individually, communally, as a society, um, and say, okay, there are certain things that we like that it did for us and certain things that we think are useful or bring justice. But there's a whole host of other things that actually are ironing out opportunity ironing out opportunity for meaning, for happiness, for ambition, for excellence, and cut those off. Like just, like why can't we be artisanal about what we, like why can't we pick and choose? I, like I remember I grew up in an Orthodox community and I remember like some rabbi once saying to us like, well, you know, you can't pick and choose what you follow and what you don't. And I just remember looking at being like, why not? Like who said, of course I can. Most ridiculous thing ever. Um, and in fact, choose throughout history and everyone throughout history has. Um, and so I, just, I guess I just want to bring some of that spirit here. And I, and I don't want people to feel like they are in jail. Like I don't, I don't want them to look out onto the world and say, well, there's nothing I can do about the fact that, um, that every single small business in my neighborhood has closed down. And so I guess I just have to live with that and, and think it's okay. Or it's okay that every single church um, within a 10-mile radius has been closed for a year. If it's not okay with you. So I guess I, I, I'm trying to instill in people the knowledge that they can look around and admit what feels broken to them. So but what you just said seems to somewhat be across purposes, right? So if what led to this decline is a sort of decline of institutions, right? Those institutions need to have some degree of coercive force, right? Like you need labor unions that are going to advocate for particular mm -hmm. policies rather than mm -hmm. sort of, you know, atomized individuals who, yes, are making their own choices, but without mediating, mediating institutions between them and the broader society, 
um, the sort of ind- individual choices are rendered meaningless in the face of sort of you know much more powerful forces, including sort of concentrations of capital. Right? Um, you know, religious organizations, <laughs> um, you know, n- need to need to have some degree of boundaries for them to be meaningful, right? Meaningful communities, mm-hmm. right? You need some degree of, uh, you know, even within extremely diverse and pluralistic organizations, you, you de- do need, uh, <laughs> uh, you, well, you need boundaries, right? I mean, that yeah. would be, that would be what flatness, that would be what the tech revolution has broken down. And then, you know, you're saying, uh, <laughs> and, and, and obviously, um, uh, you know, to the rabbi, like, well, no, I want to, I want to pick and choose, but it wouldn't, the problem be that everybody wants to pick and choose and modern society and the tech revolution sort of give us that ability. Um, and, uh, and in the meantime, the sort of media mediating institutions that used to shape the choices that were offered to people, uh, have withered away. And so you have individual men and men and women left facing sort of mass society. I guess I just feel like um, maybe that's how you feel the technological revolution as giving you a ton of choice. I think it's an illusion. Oh, I, I think would agree. The, right. So, yeah. so I don't actually, I don't actually believe that that's what they may say that that's what they're doing. Um, but that's like the equivalent of saying that the news landscape now is even better than it was 10 years ago because there are all these other news sources. When in fact, obviously we know that while we did was replicate a bunch of garbage. Um, So I don't, what I, I don't necessarily see. Okay. So yes, I suppose you're right that if what you're saying is, well, Alana, we could now, we actually do have a choice between 45 different kinds of Q-tips that we can order from Amazon. Yes, I suppose you do. But all elements of real choice from our life have been stripped because most of them can't, we can't choose them because they're dead. So I can't actually choose a local uh, knitter to buy a scarf from because she's not open anymore. Her business has been run to the ground. I can't actually choose um, to go to um, any kind of religious service right now, frankly, um, because they've all been closed. Um, And this is not even, I'm not even talking about COVID, this is before COVID. Um, I can't actually join a rotary club because there are no more rotary clubs. I can't join a union because the unions have been kneecapped. So I guess what I'm saying is, is the choices that we now have are effectively choices over things that are not very meaningful. And the choices over the um, it, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the old joke about um, the couple and the woman says, yeah, you know, my husband, he decides when the country's going to go to war and who's going to be the next president. I decide where we bank, where our kids go to school, how the house is run. And it's like that. It's like those things, 
there are meaningful choices and non-meaningful choices. And I don't think that the choices that we've been given um, to spout about Donald Trump and maybe get 11,000 retweets or to have our choice of, you know, a million different kinds of sweat socks to buy probably from some sweatshop in China um, versus actual choice in our life for things that are going to bring texture and depth. Yeah, but Phil's point, I think, is that if you're thinking about this in terms of kind of uh, cardinal values, really, Alana, you were talking about restoring a sense of the expansive freedom of America, which was obviously, and by expansive freedom, I think you mean that both in a you know on a personal and uh, on a collective level, you know both in the sense of people's individual freedoms and, and opportunities and also in the sense of, you know, go West young man and, and the frontier being there. But I think what Phil's saying, and and, uh, and I don't think that this is a, a trivial point, is that part of the way we got to where we are now was the selling of the meaningless choices you're describing as freedom in a way that is very difficult for people to disentangle because you need, if freedom is one cardinal value, there are other cardinal values. And also there are different freedoms that are in tension, right? So the, the individual freedom, you know, what, what the modern liberal administrative state prioritizes is individual freedoms, but those individual freedoms are in tension with the freedom of association that a church requires or a synagogue requires or a mosque requires, right? And where those freedoms have come into tension over the past half century, the individual freedoms and the state's appointment of itself as the ultimate guardian of individual freedoms, as opposed to the family or the the church, et cetera, that the individual freedoms have always won out. And ultimately what that's meant is that you've lost the kind of meaningful collective power necessary to make the sorts of decisions like, Hey, we don't want to lose all the small businesses in our, in our area. And we would rather not have uh, 50 kinds of toothpaste available on Amazon. We'd rather have the ability to maintain uh, a local store where we have some level of human interaction with the store owner and where we can influence uh, the kinds of things they carry. We know where they're coming from. We know something about the conditions there, you know, presumably, but that if you, if you don't, if you don't recapture uh, like yeah, a or, human or, value or other or than workers, freedom. Right. Or as workers, we don't want to be, <laughs> sort of perfect, perfect profit maximizing engines for yes. a, uh, you know, a company, um, yes. you know, uh, out on the market competing with everybody for whom their workers are merely, you know, uh, means to an end, but rather we would like to have, uh, you know, work life have some degree of, of dignity and culture in and of itself, which entails empowering workers, right? Um, yes. I mean, the, the, you know, one of the things that I kept thinking of when I was reading this, and it was interesting too, because I mean, a lot of your sort of 
negative examples are sort of read left wing, right? And and um, but what I kept thinking of was like John Ruskin style mm-hmm. um, romantic communism, right? You know, Ruskin um, uh, didn't consider economics a science. He thought it was like alchemy or astrology or witchcraft because it, it, it was um, it got and I'm borrowing from uh, an essay by uh, McCarraher uh, because it got human nature wrong, right? That humans are not rational utility maximizing calculators, but quote, an engine whose motive power is the soul. And so its starting point was false. And so economics was in his mind, uh, like a science of gymnastics, which assumed that men had no skeletons. Um, whereas, you know, he felt that, you know, the real science uh, had to be designed around an economy of heaven, right? A desire and labor for the things that lead to life, for love, for joy and admiration. And then the question is, which I think we sort of can agree uh, in some sense that obviously, you know, the things that make you rational, profit maximizing, utility maximizing engines are not um, what is most valuable in life or what we want. But then the question is, what does that entail in terms of public policy, right? Because a lot of the solutions that you have at the bottom of this piece um, we're sort of, you know, you're talking on an individual personal level, but a lot of the things that you trace at the top leading to this state of affairs are happening at a broad level and the level of the economy, the tech revolution, the smashing of unions, the offshoring of labor. Um, and so, you know, along with a sort of individual personal rejection of the sort of new value of flatness that you see in the world, which I thought was a, you know, interesting, very useful concept for thinking about things. Um, does that Im- Im- imply much broader changes to our economy and political life? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I guess what I would say is, is hmm, just to sort of pull at the thread of the broader question, um, challenge, what I guess I would say is I was speaking to people as individuals because for better or for worse, that's how I feel most people understand themselves now. Um, and ironically, what I'd like them to do as individuals, what I'd like the first thing for them to do as individuals is say, I'd like to be part of a collective. I I actually want (laughs) That's, I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to meet them where they are and say, understand that you, this is the language and the, this is, I mean, it's the, it's the culture that you have been taught to see as valuable. Um, I'd like you to reconsider that and use your, use your, um, use your power as an individual to uh, stop being an individual if that makes any sense. That makes perfect sense. And this is, uh, I would say this is a a critical perennial theme uh, for Phil and I, which is the idea that the the meaning of an individual life, even the self-determined meaning of an individual life is always necessarily formed within a community of value. So what was it? Was McIntyre was like the first or second? No, it was the second episode we did, Phil. 
patriotism. No, no, in the no. Future. We did um, the first episode though was humanism. humanism and I think right. that um, a lot of these themes came up in our. But it was early with on. humanism. McIntyre yeah. was like seven or eight. I can. It was early on. The, the it was point seven. Being, yeah. The point being that um, that you know, and and this is a point I think best made in the Road Warrior movie where uh, I forget the other character's name, but you know, Mel Gibson thinks that he's like a total loner and the other guy's like, no man is an Island, you know, and it's true, right? Because the road warrior comes back to save them. But that uh, but, is original to that movie too. Yes. The point is that uh, the point is that, you know, the, the kind of illusion of a totally autonomous self-determining individual, which I think was very essential to the last three decades or so, um, maybe three to four decades, uh, kind of post-1960s dispensation in American life, uh, and which appeared to offer an almost limitless power to individuals insofar as they could make all their own choices. They were totally unconstrained by tradition, by the the strictures of their families by oppressive religious or educational institutions that that sense of freedom was always an illusion because um you know a a, a human being in both bioevolutionary and social terms is a social animal uh our brains are wired socially you know there is a a, a whole vast uh, evolutionary theory that explains precisely the ways in which our, you know, some of this is still speculative, but the ways in which our brains evolved in relationship, in relation to groups. And, you know, there's a, a number called the Dunbar number, which is 150 people, I think, or thereabouts, which is essentially the number of people that our, our brains are evolved to deal with, which is a kind of large uh, prehistoric tribal unit, basically. Um, so all of which is to say that there is no such thing as a purely autonomous individual. And what ended up happening was in the throwing off of a certain set of shackles, you end up putting on a different set of shackles. And so Alana has a, a paragraph, uh, in this piece that I think makes this point very well. And it, and it says the internet tycoons used the ideology of flatness to hoover up the value from local businesses, national retailers, the whole newspaper industry, etc., and no one seemed to care. This heist by which a small group of people using the wiring of flatness could transfer to themselves enormous assets without any political, legal, or social pushback enabled progressive activists and their oligarchic founders to pull off a heist of their own using the same wiring. And the connection here is that in the same way that an individual in a small community derives their own values, their own sense of themselves, derives the the purpose and orientation of their lives from their relationship to the other people in that group, when you escape from that group, there are, there are other uh, collectives, other social relations that end up uh, mediating one sense of one's own values, right? So in the absence of smaller communities of value, whether that's larger family units, whether that's the church or whatever, the internet tycoons effectively become a surrogate. 
mm-hmm. right? And in the same way, one absorbed the values of uh, a, a synagogue, let's say, or a, a religious community and interpreted those values in one's own way. And, you know, doesn't mean that you're, you're like stamped by a factory, but that your sense of yourself and the meaning of your own life is determined in relation to those other people in those other institutions. The same thing ends up happening with these vast, uh, oligarchic monopolies. They also produce and reproduce their own values. So the choice isn't between being a, a totally free and self-determining individual on the one hand and on the other hand submitting to the kind of pressures and conformities of a particular kind of old-fashioned community. The choice is just what kind of larger relationship do you want to be a part of? Because either way, uh, your relationship to the world is mediated by these these other, uh, you know, these other institutions. Right. I, I mean, I guess I would, I would say that I would go one step further and say that you're, you're making it seem like the choice is between two different marriages, except I would say your choice is between marriage to somebody who um, you like, who makes you laugh, who's you're actually attracted to, who you have fun with. Um, who can support you, who's good looking. Um, and then like the choice between somebody who's horrible and beats you, like, <laughs> like brings nothing to you. Like, I don't, I don't see those. I think you're right to say that it's one shackle or another, but I sim- I just don't think given everything we know about the human brain, both the parts that you've described, but also all of the sensory um, input, and the way that sensory information works to, has worked for thousands of years to create the human brain and the ways in which it's being deprived, we're being deprived of it right now. I don't see these two things as just one shackle or another. No, 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 I, neither do I, neither do I, but I can't accept that it's between a happy marriage and an unhappy marriage. I, I think it's between a marriage to another human being and uh, a marriage to a shadow. You know, like one is you might be miserable, but you're engaged in a human activity. And in that misery, at least you're in contact with the actual texture and purpose of your own existence. And that may be difficult and painful, but it's living at least. It's human. Whereas the other thing may provide an illusory sense of happiness. It may seem to be an even more a blissful marriage, but it's, it's, it's actually nothing. It dissipates on contact. You know, it's, it's just a shadow, uh, or, or it's just a, a kind of digital illusion. Um, I just, I don't, so, uh, I guess just a I, bit more, go sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I just, I don't see it as that benign even. And I, and I know that you don't see, you wouldn't describe it as benign, but the leeching of that texture and humanness from our life, I think, is violent and really dangerous and is really bad. I um, think it's the greatest violence of our lifetimes uh, measured in terms of uh, you know, the greatest violence of our lifetimes within the United States measured in terms of the 
destruction of the capacity for human self-fulfillment. And uh, by self-fulfillment, I don't mean gratification. Uh, no, I think it's fantastically violent, but that that violence has a shadow quality to it, an illusory quality to it that, you know, you don't feel while it's happening necessarily. So just to, to, to make it more concrete, right, we're talking about, say, you're talking about a life that is lived within the context of, you know, family, work associations, labor unions, churches, neighborhood associations, etc. right? Like local communal groups that are component parts of sort of larger organizations that have a presence on the national stage, but which you are engaged with, with real people who you actually can know and put a face to and interact in a sort of thick way rather than a thin way versus a sort of, um, you know, somebody whose work life is free where they move between cities, between occupations or, or, uh, or jobs are not part of sort of, broader local associations um, or professional associations that have any real check on their behavior. Um, the part of political parties that don't form them so much as, um, right. you know, flow with the currents. I, I, I saw that but the um, people in that latter category are moving from one flat, nearly right. identical landscape to another. So right. it's not just the difference of somebody remaining local Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, embedded in a particular community, it's the difference between maintaining a variety of human communities, which you might be able to move between, but all of which entail certain particularities and mutual obligations between that and a form of political economy based on uh, mass surveillance and extractive practices that suck up all human value and convert it into, uh, you know, kind of unseen uh, financial instruments or invisible financial instruments, while at the same time destroying the older forms of productive economy and replacing them with, uh, you know, sort of prefabricated versions of human community so that there's never any possibility of thickness uh, so that it's no longer to come back to Alana's earlier point it's not it's no longer about what choices a given person might make they've been deprived of those choices right like the the older choices no longer exist the older mediating institutions no longer exist older forms of work no longer exist and it's not as if they've disappeared entirely either, right? It's not like the knowledge economy just made these things obsolete. No, they moved to particular places with uh, where labor exploitation on a, an industrial scale uh, could be done outside the eyes of American regulators. And also, you know, like I think of – right, so I don't know if you saw this. Uh, this is uh, Representative Madison Cawthorn mm-hmm. who – sent an email to his sort of Republican colleagues. Um, and he's kind of like a firebrand. He said, I've built my staff around comms rather than legislation. Right. Um, which is sort of, <laughs> which is sort of perfect. I mean, it, there's no expectation of, of actually sort of achieving legislation that will benefit specific, 
interests who are, you know, would be pressuring him as their re- you know, kind of local representative. Instead, he sees his job, or that would suggest that he sees his job as sort of getting around, getting on national media, um, being a national media figure who can attract, not just attract donations that way. Attract a Facebook following. A, a, appeal to the residents in his own district whose engagement with politics is not as member of the sorts of associations that are going to put pressure on their local representatives and realistically sort of push them against him if he, you know, does absolutely nothing practical with the power that he's been afforded as a member of Congress, um, but rather uh, where all of the value that they're going to get from him as a representative is to be is symbolic, right? In terms of this, you know, relationship between the atomized individual and, you know, the sort of symbolic, often kabuki theater of national politics, right? Uh, where we get sort of affect and um, sort of emotionally charged statements and headlines rather than than work. Yeah, I mean, what that, it's interesting, as you were talking, weirdly, the association that came to mind was... At was actually American newspapers mm-hmm. and American newspapers. M- many of the people who uh, work or own or used to own American newspapers like to tell a story about how everything was great and fine until the internet came along and the internet ruined everything and, and ran over everything. And they were all, nobody expected anything. And, and, and everything was great up until mm-hmm. whatever Craigslist um, which was the hugest lie ever. And in fact, they kneecapped themselves by doing a version of that, which is to say they really stopped actually understanding what was valuable about the thing they produced. What became interesting to them and to the fourth, fifth, sixth generation of trust fund families that ran newspaper companies who I guess had to support their co-cabots or llama farms in India or whatever, is that they were just like, the thing that's going to bring dividends is these ad- is advertising. So the reader is the product here. The reader is the thing that has value. And if we need to cut a bureau here or there, we can cut a bureau, but add business people onto it, add an advertising person. And then they, then they decided to take a... The techn- a technological revolution, technology, um, looking at that and saying, well, I bet I could do that business better than you and self-righteously imagine that they could present themselves as having been the standard bearer for something that they had given up decades before. Um, they never imagined that they, they haven't imagined for decades that they were in the business of producing a good, although they can say it over and over again, but that's not what they, that's not what any of their business practices seem to evince. And it's a version of that. It's a version of, well, the whole thing is smoke and mirrors. It's all about the kabuki theater of what you can convince people, how you can make people feel, how you can make them imagine themselves, who you can have advertisers imagine your readers are and imagine what kind of influence you have on readers. And at some point you're like, do you report anything? Do you have any bureaus anywhere? Like, what do you do even? And that it, it's a thing that's been going on in this country since long before um, the tech revolution. And that I think actually is 
a part of my piece that uh, is probably the, the the shortest part because I was focusing a lot on tech, but. Um, no, but the structural dimension of what you just described, right, where newspapers lost contact with the value in the product they were producing, they continued to produce something, but it was no longer delivering the value on which it had been based. It seems to me that when you when you go from why is this particular institution broken to why is everything broken, there's yeah. something very essential in that right there. Yeah. And it it's that you could continue to generate counterfeit forms of value yes. through opaque financial instruments, through convoluted Ponzi schemes, mm-hmm. through regulatory capture so that when a bunch of Redditors decide, uh, you know, they want to buy stock, you just change the rules and stop allowing them to buy those stocks. And then you get a massive billion dollar infusion. It's, it's this something systemic, both I think to a degree, uh, structurally systemic and also embedded in a certain class of Americans of which all of us are a part. We may be class traders, but we belong to that class where we have been conditioned to expect that based on our educational and other credentials, that we are entitled to a kind of value, whether we're able to earn that value or not, or that our lives correspond to a certain value and status, uh, whether the things we do in our lives uh, align with that or not. And I think that that both produces a kind of institutional sclerosis where the institutions stick around, but they no longer do something. You know, they uh-huh. no longer do the thing they're supposed to, like with newspapers. And it also makes people miserable and crazy. Because makes crazy. It makes them crazy because counterfeit living based on counterfeit value and opaque Ponzi schemes, whether it's political Ponzi schemes, you know, whether it's kind of like Facebook uh, militancy and, you know, Twitter activism or whatever, it might produce a certain kind of quick visceral hit, but ultimately it doesn't satisfy the deepest part of yourself and it makes you miserable and crazy. Yeah. You know, I think about this, um, do you know the, the Anglican theologian Rowan Williams? Yes. No, sir. Actually, I do. He's a really interesting guy, and there's a lot on language, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And one of his points, uh, you know, one of the things that he he talks about is, you know, he doesn't, he thinks that the 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 sense of the like authentic self is a fiction that's intellectually intellectually shaky and and morally problematic, right? Um, Whereas what he thinks of as our interior life is actually something that I develop in conversation with others, right? Like as I talk to someone else, I. Uh, who is obscure to me, I, I develop the corresponding sense of myself as obscure. I have to explain myself if I'm to t- attain what I want. And as I try to bring to speech what is of significance to me in such a way as to make it accessible to another, I discover that I am far from sure what it is that I can say. Right? I become difficult to myself. And that difficultness is a critical part of the interior life. Right? That that sort of process is emerges not as some sort of authentic, precious thing to be uncovered or revealed, um, but as 
is something that is created through the process of communication and exchange, right? And so he says, the for myself and the for another awareness and speech are thus not separable. Even when I try to formulate or picture my real self, what I am in effect doing is imagining an ideal other, an ideal interlocutor and observer, a listener to whom I am making perfect sense, right? And then, and this is the part I'm going for, the danger, of course, is that this imagined other, the perfect listener, blocks out the actual, less perfect, less sympathetic hearers with whom I am actually and temporally doing business so that my self-perception remains firmly under my own control. And when I think of, <laughs> you know, what we're talking about sort of engagement with um, <laughs> mass culture or um, sort of, uh, you know, we can think of one type of imagined other as, as God, right? And that's one type of formation or self-conception. <laughs> and another, uh, you know, is like, the Twitterverse or the imagined social sacrilege. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, and those lead to <laughs> very different conceptions of who the self is and what in sort of the engagement that you're going for in seeking to express yourself uh, mm-hmm. in such a medium entail. Right. Um, and I think in part it's because of that lack, uh, there's a sort of, there's a way that, you know, everything becomes frictionless, as you said, but also new sort of technologies for communication exchange often allows us to do them precisely at our speed to flee moments of difficulty um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and awkwardness. Flee uh, moments of generative difficulty. Exactly. Right? Flee yes. moments of purpose. Yeah, but see, there's a, there's a flip side to that, which is that for all of the moments of generative and purposeful friction and difficulty, you flee you accumulate an endless collection of minor grading, deteriorating frictions and difficulties. Let me give this is a, an example I just, just went through. All right. I'm staying at my parents' house in Brooklyn and it's the first time I've had cable TV in a long time. So uh, not because I don't watch TV. It's just I watch TV on the internet. You know, I'm not trying to suggest I'm above television or anything. It's just, we didn't have cable. Uh, so I'm at my parents' place. They have a cable box. Of course, it immediately breaks down. So I call up Optimum. When I call up Optimum, there's no way to get to a human operator. There are only automated systems on Optimum to deal with broken cable. None of the options in the automated system mention the actual problem I'm having. but. In order to try and get to an operator, I have to spend a half hour on the phone going through this endless series of menus where, you know, it's beeping, it's playing music, it's telling me you have to wait for the flashing lights to come on. I'm like, well, my thing is not even about flashing lights. So I have to wait through this 10 minute thing of flashing lights just to try and get to another menu. So hopefully, you know, if I wait long enough, I'll finally reach an operator. After half hour, there is no human on the other end, right? It's, it's purely an illusion. There is no human. So finally, I go online and I open up a chat window. So I can't talk to a human. I can't hear a human voice. The closest I can get to a human being to try and fix my parents' cable is on a chat, which of course would be far easier to 
you know, uh, insert a bot human simulator into, um, then it would be on a telephone call. But let's just assume it really was a human on the other end of the chat. And I believe that it was. By this point, I've spent a half hour on like an absolutely infuriating call. So the first actual human I come in contact with, I want to kill, right? right? Like, I hate this person (laughs) and I'm trying to restrain myself because I'm like, well, of course it's not your fault. I don't want to be mean to you. On the other hand, I have no opportunity to express any of my fury unless I tell this person right now. So it's like, the only human contact is a human contact centered around a like virulent explosive hate generated by the machines. And I, I don't think that's an isolated thing, you know? I feel like, but can I, I uh, this is, first of all, um, it's like, it's, it, it's a great, it, that was just a great few minutes. I just love listening to it. It's like, we're ready for, like, do you have sciatica too? I feel like it was just like a, we're all ready for the nursing home, but um the the thing that I want to add, and I know that I keep harping on this, but it's something I really firmly believe, is that part of the reason, a, a huge part of what made that experience so miserable was the absence of sensory uh, in, information and input that would come from a human interaction. Totally now, true. Yeah. Now, the best version of that would be if you actually were able to go into a store, um, stand there, you'd be able to hear some music. You might actually talk to somebody online. You'd smell things. You might go outside and get yourself some peanuts. Like it would just be life. And the, uh, the stripping away of that experience. So it's only the machine and only this sort of walking through dark, tunnels of frustration is what I think creates even more of the sense of um, just despair. And it's like, we just, I just feel like that there's this great, um, actually Deutsch, Norman Deutsch, the doctor in the piece and who now is a columnist for tablet um, once gave me a book that uh, about child development. It was amazing. And one of the, um, the examples that I never forgot was uh, an example of how a group of doctors figured out, you know, uh, we all have children. So we know this, that there's a certain moment where an infant first flips over. And for many years, people just assumed that like the body had physical capacity to flip over and just started to do that. And what actually they figured out is that, in fact, what happens is is that babies uh, are lying on their backs from birth, and they start their eyesight starts to sharpen, and it goes from being uh, black and white um, to starting to add colors. Uh, it goes from being very very uh, fuzzy to actually being able to perceive shapes. And when babies sit on the floor, they can they often watch they trace things with their eyes at a certain age. And what actually happens is is that their head traces something in an arc uh, above them, watching it, and the head actually flips the body over because it's chasing a visual 
input. And then all of a sudden, the body now has muscle memory of a thing that it right. can do, right. and now it takes over, right? But the, the, the beginning first step of every piece of cognitive uh, capacity that we have is sensory input. And it is also the, it's food. And I just, I I want you to imagine that like you had that whole exchange with the cable guy. It was like you ate an entire meal with no vitamins. Yeah, but listen, right. That's right. But this is a very dangerous thing. You just said, Alana, very, very dangerous, very radical thing, because what you're suggesting is that if the sensory input is a vital aspect of human interaction and the human experience, then what you're, what you're suggesting is that there is a thing, the human, a subject, the human, which has certain definable, knowable traits, this thing, the human, like, uh, you know, like a nature, you might say, or, uh, or, or at least something approaching a nature and that that nature, if it's, knowable and if it, it it is in some sense physical and defined by stimulus and sensory experience might also have constraints too right because everything that's physical is necessarily not infinite not boundaryless not flat but uh topographical you know a particular kind of terrain you might say like the terrain of the human and that would be uh, that would be an unconscionable thing to suggest that we all don't have a, an infinite capacity to uh, be human in in whichever way we like, and that the machines can't deliver us that humanness in whichever way they like. I don't know, man. I just want to feel shit. Like I, I just <laughs> like I just feel like yes, you're right. But at some level, at some level. Um, you look at human. You look at people, whatever they are, and they f- they feel to me to be in pain, and that that feels it feels like something that should be addressed. I guess. Yeah, I think. Uh... I think you have to you have to to explain a lot to address that pain that that pain is so primal on the one hand so you know pre conscious like mm-hmm. before anything the pain is so elemental and then mm-hmm. on the other hand the pain is so wrapped up in all of these other things from which, you know, that some of those things that people are very deeply attached to, like they are deeply invested, maybe in ways that are self-defeating, but deeply invested in, in the things that cause that pain. And, um, obviously your piece, I mean, I, you know, I'm not talking out of school when I say this, but, you know, I think that, that's one of the more uh, one of the more widely read viral pieces we've had in quite a while, and um, it obviously touched a lot of people. And the responses to it showed. And you know, Alana, um, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but you forwarded me an email from one gentleman who wrote, I thought, a very kind of. Um, 
eloquent but heartfelt response. Um, and he connected with it. And he wasn't somebody who seemed bitter or broken. He seemed like, um, you know, like a, a good, decent person who just couldn't figure out why everything around him was so broken. There, there were a bunch of them. Um, and I mean, obviously there, there were, there were a lot of responses to the piece that were very heartbreaking. Um, but the ones that were um, in some senses, the most uh, enraging and exciting um, were the ones where the person felt like they were finally given language for an experience that they'd been having either in their own lives um, or societally. Um, so I, I just, I, I, I feel lucky. I feel and like, it's funny, but I hate that these, I hate that they're coming in by email and I'm actually trying my best the, to, to zoom if I can with the people who've written um, some of the most heartfelt ones, because I'd like to, get to know them and not only see them on these screens. Um, but it, it has been, I don't know, it's been, it's been the best part, I think. So there's another aspect of this piece that we, we haven't really touched on, but which I think. Uh, oh, wait, I'm sorry. There was, yeah. there was one asshole who wrote to tell me that I was probably one of those people who hates hip hop. Um, I, I didn't really know what he was kind of just, I thought he was just basically like grousing at me, um, which I thought was kind of funny because my son, my son's middle name is Rakim. Um, and so I thought that was, that was, that was another one of my favorite emails. <laughs> it's just so like, it's so totally um, missing the point and like just <laughs> reciting cliches too, because what is uh, the only anti-flat music left is hip-hop, basically. That's you know, right. Like, That's right. It's the least flat. It's the most spiky. and um, But, it, but the, it's, it's funny that you bring that up because there's this aesthetic component to the piece also, right? And it's hard to summarize, but uh, one of the things that you get into – and I encourage people, if they haven't already, to read the piece on tablet, Everything is Broken. There's a section where you deal with modernism, the you know artistic, aesthetic movement of the early 20th century. And to summarize it briefly, basically what you describe is, a, I think, an original history that suggests that the aesthetic of modernism, which predates and was independent of uh, Bolshevism was mm -hmm. later incorporated or kind of absorbed as a, as a kind of aesthetic weapon uh, by the early communist state. And that um, it might be possible now for Americans interested in, in rebuilding not only the institutions of their country, but the culture of their country to try and recapture some of what is vital and powerful about flatness. And, you know, one of the things uh, that I'm sort of obsessed with is 
the difference between European modernism and American modernism. Mm-hmm. And there, the, the thing you talk about in the piece where you're, you're talking about the vital kind of cultural movement in America, what America had in the 1950s was a, a kind of democratic modernism. And it, you know, people think of the abstract expressionist painters, but when I think of American modernism, the first person I always think of is Ralph Ellison mm-hmm. and, you know, Invisible Man it borrows from the 19th century novel, but it's actually a modernist novel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, a deeply modernist novel. And Ellison and Albert Murray, in their ways, two writers who were, you know, great influences uh, on me personally, also were proponents or, or, or practitioners is a better word of a certain kind of experimental American modernism, which unlike European modernism, which could be very aristocratic and uh, disdainful of, uh, you know, the, the, the demos and ordinary people, American modernism was much more invested in, uh, in the kind of improvisational, democratic, experimental nature of America. And in in part, that's because it was being written by black writers uh, and and in particular black writers who were deeply influenced by jazz. Yeah. I mean, it's complicated history, right? Because in addition to having, um, having everything you just said, we also had a little bit of the CIA thrown in also. Um, but to great effect, though. To great effect. To great effect. <laughs> they did um, wonderful that, stuff this year. <laughs> <CIA. laughs> great, great work. Love, love them. They're awesome. Um, but, it, but what I, but I, I mean, I'm sort of, I'm joking, but I'm not joking. The, the thing is, is that, and I think I, I really feel this way. I do think that, um, and I know it's kind of dangerous, or it could be perceived as dangerous, although it's not remotely dangerous, or not what I mean. But countries feel um, like they have DNAs and America's DNA does feel like um, it is progressive. Um, It likes to throw out, it likes to molt and take off its costume and change sometimes violently and sometimes not to something completely different. Um, Well, you're talking about, you know, we're talking about (laughs) Ellison, right? called yeah. Ab- America an abstract futuristic country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why Ellison, I mean, I think why Ellison has claims, um, Invisible Man has claims as being like the best American novel. Um, and certainly the most American, uh, great novel. Um, because it's so deeply, connected to impulses that almost feel uh, in the soil of this country. And that feels like where, to the extent that I feel hopeful, that's where I locate my hope is in the molting impulse um, in the fact that the country kind of gets off on doing this. Now we have a, we have a, a, a big, skin to shed this time around. Um, and I think that the, you know, Jacob alluded to the surveillance state and the, and the marriage of big tech and our government. And it's, it's not a simple, um, 
challenged, overcome, and it's a big part of the reason why I think our lives and our economy and our culture and everything society is organized the way that it is. Um, but you know, it's jujitsu. You have a big opponent. <laughs> you just figure out figure out your position. Wait, hold on one second, because I'm sorry, Phil, but I have to come back to the CIA for a second. Because <laughs> the, really, the really fascinating thing about the CIA's involvement in American modernism is that it was both legitimately uh, responsible for some of the great achievements of American intellectual culture in particular, like Encounter Magazine, mm -hmm. which was, you know, CIA – Front would be too strong, but let's say a CIA recipient, one of, a CIA yeah, right. recipient, a recipient of CIA backing, one of several, all of which in their own ways were intended to promote a certain vision of, you know, anti-communist, uh, liberal democracy, more or less, let's say. Uh, Encounter was an incredible magazine, one of the great magazines of the 20th century. It really was. And, you know, the CIA put on these great, like, jazz tours through Europe, Radio for Europe did the same thing. At the same time, the CIA was responsible for promoting um, a kind of hyper-individualism as a counterweight, uh, uh, what it was intended to be a cultural aesthetic counter to Soviet collectivism that took on a life of its own. So some of the flatness, I think, and maybe this is a stretch and I, I don't know, uh, I don't have the history at my fingertips well enough to really push too hard on this, but I think some of the kind of groundwork of the flatness arguably can be traced to CIA sponsorship of a certain American strain of hyper-individualism, which maybe in its more organic relationship to the culture of the country was a more vital and, and vibrant expression of the national character, but weaponized by the CIA took on a life of its own that, um, that became destructive and self-defeating as I think many CIA programs have become. Um, but it is a it is a fascinating history. Really fascinating. Well, should we should we go on to uh, Anu DeFranco? I went to Barnard, and I remember when I went to Barnard, there was this whole conversation in the nineties about um, just about uh, the importance of women's education, women's only colleges. Um, and wh whether we needed them anymore since all the universities and colleges that had uh, been uh, only accepted men started accepting women. And there was a lot of pressure on the conversation about why one would have a women's only education. And at some point you just started to feel like, you know, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a place to stand. Like it's a place for me to stand to, so I can look out onto the world. And Sometimes I feel like you could just choose, choose anything, choose anything that feels meaningful to you, that feels like a meaningful part of your identity and use that as your binoculars. Yeah. Well, now that's a good segue. Conversations about the 90s, Barnard College. I mean, there must have been 
a lot of Ani DeFranco being listened to at Barnard College. I have no idea what you're trying to insinuate. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. (laughs) You know, I I really did not have, um, I would say, an accurate recollection. Like, when I listened to this record, do you remember what's the name of the record we're about to talk about? Living in Clip, Mm -hmm. which is this live Ani DeFranco record that Alana selected, recorded in 1997, quite long. Um, re- really, uh, a long double record, thirty-five tracks. Yeah, when I started listening to it, I realized I had, I guess I I had thought she sounded oh, no, uh, tracks. Yeah. more like, I don't know, it, I was expecting something folkier, I guess. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of, uh, it's more rhythmic than I was anticipating. Her voice sounds, um how would I describe it? Like there's a bit of that sort of Alanis Morissette singing style, but more rhythmic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's extremely emotive. Um, like she's, it is, you know, I, I listening to it. And I was like, you know, I, I was introduced to Ani DeFranco by a girlfriend when I was in high school. Right. And I like, uh, I like some of her songs. Um, when I was listening to this, it was like, oh my God, like this is this is like ideal music for teenagers, you know, because yeah. it's just like yeah. it's just like, I hate you and you were never good in bed and I adore you. And you're like, What <laughs> you know, what's yeah, what's going on here? Yeah. Well um, I do I, I wanna say um so maybe maybe I maybe Chris Gow can help you, um, because um, he he said in this album, and I actually remember reading the review of it, um, that she finally blossoms into something arch and sisterly and sexy and effervescent, um, which is a particularly like adult, adolescent, female phase, um, sort of halfway into sort of moving into being something more stable. Um, but there's not a lot of stability emotionally or psychologically on this or musically on these two albums. Um, but that's kind of what I liked about it. It's like, it's not, for me, it feels like in some senses the opposite of smooth or, I don't know, smooth or well done even. There's so many parts of it that are off-putting or annoying, but then just, it opens up. I don't know. I just yeah yeah yeah. They, I I think it took. Listen, um, this is not not my favorite album <laughs> I've ever listened to. But when I stuck with it, I discovered things in it which were rewarding, and I found it off putting. I think uh, a combination of you know it's just genuinely not my kind of music, and then maybe um, certain like deeply ingrained macho hangups that I can't even like consciously will myself out of possibly because I wanted to upset expectations and like this, but there's a certain kind of, um, there's a certain kind of like arch feminine phase that this represents as Alana just put it that I, maybe I'm, 
frightened by or something or mm-hmm. I feel unsettled by. I mean, uh, yeah. The other thing that I want to say is, is, I mean, and this is the, this is the part that I think is the reason why I chose it. The reason why I was listening to it a bunch um, is really, it's actually much more about the nineties for me than the art of it or than the emotions of it. Um, for me, there's just a lot of nostalgia about what felt, what America felt like in 1995 and 96 and 97. Um, and there was a part of me this last year that, you know, we're going through a pandemic. Uh, we zoom into all of our meetings and I just was like, what was the last time I felt norm? Like what was the last time I felt like I didn't have this technology running my whole life? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it right. was then. So and, you know what? Yeah. And I just wanted to be transported it was almost like I could have listened to anything, I guess. Um, and it was just one thing that came up. But when it did, it just reminded me of living a different kind of life. You could not be the person who made this record if you'd been exposed to social media. Correct. It's not possible. Correct. But it Correct. would have edited those parts of yourself before you were even conscious of missing them. Yeah. And yeah, it like, takes it takes weird risks that like that don't pay off, right? All the time, um, it feels very sort of raw. I mean, it's like some of the things, you know, like they she does the song both hands with an orchestra backing, and like yeah. I like the song both hands, but <laughs> I did not like this version of it. You know. And it like to me like I could not listen to the to the album all the way through. It was like it was like eating a cheesecake, you know. It's like okay, like I I don't have the metabolism to deal with anymore right now. Like it's like a lot. Um, uh, but yeah, it is. It does feel there's a you know it it it, it has you know it takes risks in a variety of different directions, um, and it doesn't feel you know super well you know it, it doesn't feel like she's sort of working everything out every not everything feels perfectly crafted um it feels uh, like the appeal is her like yeah the appeal is a craft like i just it's, want, it's, I want yeah. to think about like what it was like to live in a society where that was like that was the finished product <laughs> like that's like that people just put stuff out there and you watch them work it through and you watch them try out an orchestral background and then realize it didn't work or people hated it. And it was just so fun. It was fun to watch artists do that. And I mean, it was, I just, I I can't remember a time much after that when it felt like we saw I mean, and I, I take your point that there's a particular kind of female vulnerability. I think I also probably reminded one or maybe both of you of some ex-girlfriends someone had in their past, um, because the 
I know that this there's a particular kind of female energy of that's that that's, was my I was I was I, I was courted with um yes. untouchable face. I know. Uh, was, I, I'm I was sorry. I was, I'm sorry. The, the okay, headphones so. was put on my head and then I and me being a dumb high school student, I was like, Oh, I guess it's a good song and not realize what was trying to be communicated. Um so do you guys yeah, want to talk my, Do you want to talk about your feelings about this? <laughs> See that that's the this is unsettling. <laughs> this is like because it's not just vulnerability, it's a brashness also. That's what's unsettling. It's the combination of vulnerability and brashness. You and know? all 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 crammed together sometimes within the space of, you know, like you know, ten seconds of the of the song. Crammed together and self-insistent and like self-possessed and the thing she's performing is whatever she has inside of herself at that moment. And, you know, I know what you mean, Alana, that this feels like it belongs to a very particular time that um, that kind of experimentation was uh, not only possible still, but rewarded you know valued there was you could build a, a big following and a kind of mythology that way and, and also are, it felt it felt like uh, the other thing i would say is is i know that i know that there's a whole uh i don't even i guess we don't we shouldn't really get into sort of the difference the differences between what it's what it means now to be a woman and what it means now to be a man and the ways in which both of those things have changed since the 90s but just, and I know that the universe for fucking up has narrowed uh, for men in a whole host of ways. Um, but there's almost some way in which, like, well, in some ways that are that are good. Uh, yes, I mean yes. it's interesting. You know, listening to this album, there are songs that that very much seem sort of prefiguring. You know, she's speaking very openly about things that get discussed a lot more widely post Me Too, right? I mean, she has a song. She has she has a song about an about an abortion that I heard her play in a pretty big setting in the nineties. It's like like I know it may not seem like much now, but it it didn't feel inconsequential then that she did that and then kind of switched on her cute baby voice and did whatever version of a folk love song she used to yeah, do. Yeah, there's there's no real attempt to um, yeah, that. That one is interesting too, because there's no real attempt at. I mean, she's not trying to make a. Well, I mean, it's very clear what her political statement is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of like what the experience is, you know, at one point, it's a very short song. Like at one point, you know, it's like the fetus is holding court in my in my gut, my body hijacked, and then at another point, it's you know, unbutted blood and tissue. Um, and then another point, she's saying, you know, I'll miss you, I say to the son or daughter I thought better of. Um, it's, you know, a, just a series of, of very different sort of emotional responses to it, packed together and not, not attempted to sort of coalesce into a kind of clear, or sort of like philosophically clear uh, depiction uh, of that event so much as taking you through the kind of different intense emotional states. Yeah. I, I just, it, there's something about it that feels, um, 
it feels evocative of a particular kind of America. And you can look at that moment and say, right, that was a really um, sort of dangerously mediocre moment. Um, but I guess I, I just don't see it that way. I didn't, I don't see the nine, maybe because it was a, it was a time, it was because of how old I was in the nineties. Um, I don't see it as having been a dark time. And I look to it a lot for, I don't know. I, I, I look to it a lot because it, it felt actually weirdly joyful. That's funny. Joyful is not uh, the word I would I would that that comes to mind for me at all, and neither is it uh, what this record brings to mind for me. Though there are joyful tracks on it, but um, you know, I think intense emotional periods uh, can be joyful in retrospect, even if that's not how you experience them at the time, because they provide so much experience of life but right exactly it's more life like just like yeah. it's just and even in the middlingness of it like there was something so great about not having to be phil said before that you know that he actually used the word cohesion which i think is really right like not everything needed to cohere like it, it didn't need to cohere like not everything needed to be perfect not everything needed to to actually be great. It could just be like good. <laughs> and that, and like, that was great. Like, could we just be good? Yeah. I, I think though, to, to bring out the other side of that decade, which, um, you know, I, I have strong associations with as well, that at the same time as there was this kind of, I, I think a real, uh, flowering of art, music in particular, that embodied what you're talking about, Alana, that it was messy and human and didn't always cohere, um, but was powerful and, and really trying to communicate something through feeling. That the other side of that was that there was this beginning really of, um, an expansive, cripplingly expansive sense of what an individual life was supposed to accomplish and entail. I remember all these friends I had who in the late 90s were like devastated by the thought that that the, the opportunity for them to be both an artist and a billionaire and to be, you know, like a criminal, but also be a rich artist, but also uh, be an intellectual. That that not all of all of those things were not going to be simultaneously possible, and that also that their lives might not uh, might not be quite as cinematic as they had been led to believe was the only kind of life worth living. And that sounds like an arch statement and a kind of um, like a kind of contrived critique. But I really remember that, you know, I remember the disappointment that people I knew had at the sense that like the limitlessness that had appeared to be on offer to them 
was starting to close. And, mm. uh, and I guess that was, um, the last period, you know, I had a long conversation the other day with our, our mutual acquaintance, David Samuels. And, uh, <laughs> he was, um, uh, he was making a case to me for his generation and, um, sort of arguing for the Gen Xers as, uh, Stoics, you know, I think is essentially how he put it, that there was a, a kind of stoicism and like a, a resignation to the, you know, an, an adult, um, spiritually mature resignation to the, um, the suffering and impossibilities of existence that somehow got wiped out in, in succeeding generations. And, you know, I think part of what that was about was that history had a, become so remote from the lives of most Americans history in the sense of the conflict and turmoil on which peace and prosperity are based and the, you know, the, the endless conflicts that uh, arise over material scarcity and uh, nation states, et cetera, et cetera, that all of that had become very, very remote. You know, this is what people mean when they talk about the end of history, right? Mm -hmm. But that that had then been sort of, it had gotten so remote, so distant, that the themes of history had then been absorbed into these very particular kinds of artistic expressions. And you could still talk about these things through these very personal artistic statements. Um, mm -hmm. They couldn't, they didn't belong to politics. They, mm -hmm. they didn't have a meaningful impact on how you might organize a community because those questions were already settled, right? Like history was no longer intruding on political questions, but it still showed up in art uh, as personal statements. And, um, and then when it, when it crashed back, it was hard to reconcile that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I, I am, um, technically Gen X. Um, uh, although David is much, 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 much older than I am. Um, of but, uh, um, I don't know that I see it the same way that he does, although um, that that's probably a function both of the universe that he lived in and also the age he was he was um, versus the age I was in the universe I came from. I came from an Orthodox community that experienced the '90s in a very very particular way. Um, my community um, be, became more religious. Um, also became wealthier, uh, also engaged with its relationship to Israel in a much more three-dimensional way and vibrant way. Um, there was like something rollicking about my community in the 90s. Um, but also because it had this element of deepening religion, uh, dark and grave about it um it was at once there was there were a lot of dynamics frankly why did it become more religious 
Um, it's a very interesting question. Um, Sam Friedman did a, a couple of pieces about it uh, in the 90s and the 2000s that were focused on my community on Long Island. Um, I'm sure that there's a sociologist. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm so wary of opining on stuff like this because then some sociologist calls me the next day to tell me how stupid I am. But um, the answer to your question is that uh, these communities uh, were post-Holocaust communities that had run away from religious affiliation in the decades afterwards. Um, some of them, depending on the exact nature of the community, found their way back to it. Um, and my community was one of them. My community was made up of um, a bunch of Holocaust survivors and their descendants. Um, then a group of people who made money, a group of the Brooklyn uh, Jews who came from a more religious Jewish community. And once they made money, they moved to my community and they brought with them a more religious uh, observance. And the combination of religion and money was very particular um, in my neighborhood. We were in Lawrence, which was technically Long Island, but we, uh, we were literally, I could throw a rock into Far Rockaway, which was technically Queens. Um, and it was just, it was a very, it was very textured um, upbringing in a very textured time. And it didn't feel, I don't know how to explain it. It felt like we were both rooting ourselves in our past and also like aggressively engaging in the future. More kids in my neighborhood started going to Ivy League schools. Uh, lots of people in my neighborhood started making a lot of money. Um, bunch of people in my neighborhood went to jail. Um, so it was just, we, it was just like, it was like more life, just what you said. Yeah. No, it's interesting though, because I had, uh, you know, I, I've experienced that era differently. And, uh, I guess I had always imagined that that experience was, if not universal, then, um, Generally, How did you experience it? Um, I experienced it as being, look, I, I was uh, sort of wild myself in those years and had, uh, you know, I was an adolescent in the, in the 90s and was, had a hard time sitting still in my own skin, you know, and was sort of uh, seeking out experiences all the time. And so, I experienced it as a, a, a series of like failures and disappointments to my parents. That's part of how I experienced it. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Breaking my parents' hearts uh, a number of times. Um, and I experienced it as an adventure in New York City. And that adventure revolved around the um, a deeply imagined and I think very sincerely believed feeling that there were these secret lures in New York, these secret worlds inside of New York that we were always on the cusp of accessing and 
and we would get close to some of them and we would find one world and move to another world. And, um, and, uh, you know, not just like drugs and subcultures, but some of that, but, uh, but a, a, a desire to kind of absorb the drama of, you know, the drama of human suffering through literature and through in miniature through experience. I mean, I was, um, I was like hanging out with people who were drug taking fuck ups, but who also read Dostoevsky and that mm-hmm. sounds pretentious, but the, I mean, those were my people. And, <laughs> um, and I went and tried to have those other, I mean, one of them produces our show now and can attest to this. So, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm still friends with, uh, some of these people and, uh, and, and that was part of it. But the other part of it was I saw people crashing into the reality of their own lives in different ways. And so myself, I, you know, was, um, I was sort of coming out of my own skin, like I was saying, and was uh, trying to do something worthy of the ways that I thought of myself and trying to figure that out. But I came from a good family that loved me and treated me decently, and I didn't want for anything. And also I had a sense of some sense of uh, limitations that I could run into. And I would say I had friends at the time who were both finding out that they were unable to outrun through um, through their own kind of heroic self-conception that that wasn't enough to outrun coming from damaging family experiences and another set of friends who are finding that like the endless consumer choices that went into the construction of their identities were uh, a kind, either a kind of unwinnable race, you know, like that they were always trying to construct a more elaborately expressive and perfected identity and that that was unsatisfying and also a kind of, uh, weirdly self denigrating status competition. And also that like, that, that it was, uh, not as grand as it was supposed to be. So yeah, that was I had that, I had that later. I had, I think I had, I had that experience a little later. I think because my, because I did come from a community that was pretty insular. Um, and that, I don't know, there just, there wasn't a whole lot of, there wasn't a whole lot of wiggle room. Um, there's very, some very set, uh, expectations for how to live your life. Um, and it almost seemed static in a funny way. It was like, it wasn't, there weren't a ton of choices that you had to make. Um, and for me, the nineties were about realizing that I actually did have more choice than I thought. Um, it, it, it was, it was like, it was only expansive freedom. I don't think I crashed into anything until a decade later. Yeah. You know what the Ani DeFranco album brought back to me? And I had just been thinking about this not too long ago. I I really love um, Fiona Apple. She Mm -hmm. was the kind of uh, Mm -hmm. 
icon of like mm -hmm. vulnerable but brash. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I was really into her. And actually, I went and saw her by myself at Terminal Five, like a month after I got back from Afghanistan. And so it was a bad idea to be the only solo straight guy at a Fiona Apple show. It's just like a very <laughs> weird look, you know. It's not. <laughs> does not make people comfortable and um and it's a really bad idea to get too drunk when you're a month back from afghanistan as the only straight guy by himself at a fiona apple show there was this like this really pretty girl who was in a um uh like a horror movie nurse's outfit who, who was very taken with me and and we were getting along great and then and this is like, this was my rebellion against the internet. And then all of these people were holding up their cell phones to record the show. This was in uh, 2012, I guess. And that was a new thing to me. I hadn't been to a concert in a few years and I'd never seen that before. And so I started to scream at people like, put down your phones. Like, you know, what are you doing? Like, you're here. Like, watch, watch. It's in front of you. Why are you recording this? And the girl was, she liked it at first, but then I had like two too many drinks or three too many drinks. And then I was just like screaming at people at the Fiona <laughs> Apple concert. And I was, I was calling them peeping Toms. I was like screaming, you're, you're like peeping Toms, like, but you're spying, but you're there. What are you spying on? You're so, um, okay, that's, that's not what I wanted to say. What I wanted to say is, do you remember the, speech that Fiona Apple gave at the of MTV Awards. Of course. Now, at the time, it was a little embarrassing, right? Like, I, like, I mean, talk about friction. But how it's incredible great, was it? Incredible, incredible. So bold, so brave, yep. so gutsy and human. And I mean, not only imperfect, but kind of ridiculous, right? <laughs> Messy, but Messy. extraordinary. Yep. But extraordinary. Man, oh man. I didn't prepare a speech, and I'm sorry, but I'm glad that I didn't because I'm not going to do this like everybody else does it. Because um, everybody that I should be thanking, I'm really sorry, but I have to use this time. See, Maya Angelou said that we, we as human beings at our best can only create opportunities. And I'm going to use this opportunity the way that I want to use it. And that's, that's, I guess, what I guess I want to say is, is like, that's what I miss. I miss, right now, you look on the internet and there's a lot of messy, but it's not messy and extraordinary. And I guess that there's a lot of extraordinary or perfect or something or well done, well executed, as people like to say but it's not messy and it's not interesting. And it's just like, here, here's the thing that I want to say about the, um, about the album. And you, you, you guys both um, mentioned two or three or four times how many tracks there are on the album <laughs> that I made you listen to. Um, and I guess I want to, I want to say something about it. And this is maybe the most important part of it for me. There's one, there's a concept of creative waste, which is like, you just have to make a lot of garbage 
when you do anything interesting. Yeah. And we've lost it. We've completely lost this idea. It's like, well, why do you, why can't a publishing house just put out the hits? Or why can't you just put out good articles or articles that get lots of clicks? And you're just like, it's not actually how anything works. And what I love about these two out al- this album, I will say is, is like, there's a lot of creative waste and somehow it feels good to me to live in a world or to imagine a world where that could be encouraged. Which well, is not fully realized yet. You know, I remember going to, um, a couple of years ago, the Guggenheim did a really good exhibit. It was Picasso black and white. And it was just black and white painting, uh, you know, the, uh, Picasso. Mm-hmm. And they're arranged chronologically. And it was really astounding because, you know, he'd be going through one style and that style would reach its like, you know, perfection. And then the next painting would kind of suck, right? Yep. And be, and, it, and you wouldn't even see what it, like, what is he doing? And like, You'd keep walking and it would get refined. And then you go, oh, that's what he was doing in that, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. that painting. And then the style would switch again. And then as you get to the top, you have paintings that are incorporating various different elements from the different styles that you've seen as you've been walking, you know, along the way, you know, in that spiral in the Guggenheim up to the top. And, uh, or, or I think you go backwards. Mm-hmm. Like you, yeah. Anyway. Um, it's the same, by the way, that, that, that's the same, um, same phenomenon with Philip Roth novels, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah. You see him working his way towards something. Um, and like six or seven of the books are not good. And right. then it's like, and then you yeah. get Sabbath theater or then you get the counter life and you're like, Oh shit. Now, if I look back, I haven't read Sabbath theater. Oh Is that, God, that's a good Sabbath. one. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, the counter life is my favorite Roth novel that I've read. It's um, so I guess it says it's a you know, it says something about who you are, what Roth novel you like, or if you like Roth or Bellow more or whatever. But um, counter life (laughs) is is an amazing book. Um, Sabbath Theater is the book that you're going to like want to throw against the wall for Hmm. two thirds of it. And then it just, for me becomes his best, his best book. Um, Can I give you a a sentence from Sabbath theater? Yes. Yes. Here we go. Lately when Sabbath suckled at Drenka's uberous breasts, uberous, the root word of exuberant, which is itself X plus Uberare, to be fruitful, to overflow like Juno lying prone in Tintoretto's painting where the Milky Way is coming out of her tit, suckled with an unrelenting frenzy that caused Drenka to roll her head ecstatically back and to groan, as Juno herself may have once groaned, I feel it deep down in my cunt. He was pierced by the sharpest of longings for his late little mother. Uh, So, you know, that what that makes me think of is, um, I mean, that's a very memorable passage. You picked the right passage to get me to read the novel. Uh, But Anatole Broyard has a great uh, line in his unforgettable, inimitable memoir on Kafka's The Rage, where he's talking about um, Portnoy's complaint. And he says that, uh, you know, Roth's complaint or Portnoy's complaint was that underneath their skirts, women all had cunts, but 
the real problem for Roth was that underneath their skirts, they had souls. And, <laughs> you know, I don't know, uh, maybe that, uh, the effect of that is, is somewhat lessened in the context, but it is a, a brilliant, brilliant turn in a great, uh, great book when Kafka is the mm. rage. So, okay. I'll read Sabbath theater. I'm into it. Joe. Very good. Alana. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you. For coming on. Thank you guys. Thank you for having me. Really. It was a lot to have a fun. Man. Oh, man. I didn't prepare a speech and I'm sorry, but I'm glad that I didn't because I'm not going to do this like everybody else does it. Um, because everybody that I should be thanking, I'm really sorry, but I have to use this time. See, Maya Angelou said that we, we as human beings, at our best, can only create co- opportunities. And I'm going to use this opportunity the way that I want to use it. So what I want to say is, um, everybody out there that's watching, everybody that's watching this world, this world is both. And you shouldn't model your life. Wait a second. You shouldn't model your life about what you think that we think is cool and what we're wearing and what we're saying and everything. Go with yourself. Go with yourself. And there's just a few people that I want to say something to. I want to say, Mama, I love you. I'm so glad that we're becoming friends. Amber, I love you. You're my sister. You're my best friend. Andrew Slater, no one else could have produced this album and no one else did. Um, and it's just stupid that I'm in this world but you're all very cool to me so thank you very much and I'm sorry for all the people that I didn't thank but man it's good, bye